0: We're going to do something today that is a little unusual for me. We're going to give you a very brief, quick overview of God's entire relationship with mankind. Now, that's a huge subject, and really, it's impossible to cover it. So I'm not going to be going into great detail on this, but I found this, that sometimes in teaching, you get so specific, so detailed trying to verify something that people get lost along the way, and they never do get like an overview of the whole thing. Now, there's uh, there's a time for that, but there's also a time sometimes just to give like kind of an outline, something that'll give you a crystal clear way of understanding, you know, uh, a subject, and then you go back and pick it apart and study it. So anyway, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to cover all the way from Genesis to Revelation. We're going to be dealing with the nature of God. The covenants of God reveal the nature of God. Now, that's the reason God made covenants. God bound himself by his word for the purpose of revealing himself to us. How can two walk together except they be agreed is what the scripture said. So God began to reveal himself to us through the covenants. And these covenants gave us an impression of God. But, and this is one of the things that I'll be ministering on and spending a lot of time on this morning, the old covenant was never understood properly. The old covenant was misunderstood, misapplied, and because of it, people got a schizophrenic impression of God. And most people in the church of God today still do not understand what the real nature and character of God is because of Scripture, because of things in Scripture that have been misapplied and misunderstood. Now, let me say that the Scripture was not in error, the Scripture was not wrong, but people have interpreted it wrong. Most people have a picture of God as being a very harsh, severe God and then you see Jesus coming along and Jesus presents a picture of mercy and forgiveness and they look contradictory to each other. They are not contradictory. If you understand what the real purpose of the Old Testament law was, then you'll be able to understand properly how that God has always been love. And you'll be able to relate, you'll be able to walk in the love of God and get a revelation of how much God loves you like you never have before. So in a nutshell, we're going to try and deal with that and explain that this morning. And if you can stick with me, we're going to be using a lot of scriptures. We're going to be going fast. I'll be talking fast because I got... To cover a lot of material but if you can stick with me i promise you this will really help you in your relationship with the lord now first of all right before i get into romans chapter five i want to take an example from the old testament 2 kings chapter one and i'm just going to refer to this because it'd take uh, too much time to go over there and read all of this but anyway this is an example about where a king named ahaziah who was the son of ahab ahab was the most wicked king israel had ever had up until that time ahaziah was sick and so ahaziah sent his messengers to Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, to inquire whether he would be able to recover of this sickness or not. And Elijah, who was a prophet of God during that time, God spoke to him, gave him a word of knowledge, and he intercepted Ahaziah's messengers on the way to Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. And Elijah told those messengers, he says, is it because there isn't a god in Israel that your king has sent to inquire of Beelzebub? He says, because he's done this thing, you go back and tell him that he will not live, but he'll die on that bed that he's laid down on. And so the messengers turned around, and they came back. And they came back real quick, and so ah- Ahaziah said, How come you've returned so soon? And they said, Well, there was a man that met us, and this man told us all of these things. And Ahaziah said, What kind of man was he? And they said, Well, he was a hairy man, and girt about the loins with a girdle of leather. And Ahaziah said, It's Elijah the Tishbite. And uh, anyway, a little background. I won't take a lot of time on this, but Ahaziah's father, Ahab, had killed a man and taken possession of his vineyard, Naboth. And he took over his vineyard. And as he was walking in this vineyard, looking at his new possession, Elijah, the prophet of God, met him. And he said, said, "Uh, Ahab, because you've done this thing, the dogs that licked Naboth's blood where you murdered him, they'll also lick your blood in this very vineyard. And Jezebel, the queen, who was really behind the whole thing, says the dogs are going to eat her in the portions of Jezreel. Now, this was Elijah and it came to pass just not very long after uh Ahab got shot uh by an arrow in a battle and as the people brought his chariot back they washed it out in the vineyard and the dogs came and licked the blood out of the chariot in the vineyard and not too long after that Jehu became king over Israel and he came and uh Jezebel painted herself up and looked out of a tower in in uh, uh way up on the top of one of these towers she was looking out of a window and Jehu said, Who's on the Lord's side? And a eunuch stuck his head out and he said, If you're on the Lord's side, cast her down. And he threw her out of this tower and she fell on the pavement, killed her. He ran his chariot back and forth across her, went in, sat down and ate. And while he was eating, he got to thinking and he said, Well, even though she was a wicked woman, she was a, a king's daughter and says, We ought to bury her. So he sent his man out to bury her. And when they got there, all that was left was her skull, the palms of her hand and her feet. And the rest of her, the dogs had eaten. Now, this was the prophet who prophesied all of those things, Elijah, and Ahaziah was the son of Ahab and Jezebel, and he knew exactly who Elijah was. He knew all about him, and man, fear took hold on him when he found out that Elijah had prophesied that he was going to die. And so he sent a captain and 50 men out to take Elijah, and Elijah was sitting on top of a hill, and this captain came, and he said, O thou man of God, the king has said, come down. And Elijah said, if I be a man of God, let fire come down out of heaven and consume you and your fifty. And immediately the fire of God fell out of heaven and consumed fifty-one men. And then another captain in his fifty came, and he said, oh, thou man of God, the king has said, come down quickly. And Elijah said, if I be a man of God, let fire come down out of heaven and consume you and your fifty. And it did. A hundred and two men destroyed. And then the third captain came and he said, "'Wait, Elijah, I'm a God-fearing man. Don't destroy me.'" He says, "'I'm just doing what the king told me to.'" And God told him he could go with him, and he was protected. Now, anyway, that's a powerful example of a prophet. I mean, this guy was strong. I mean, he just points and fire comes down out of heaven. Amen? That's pretty strong. You know, I'm always amazed. People who want to be a prophet, and I believe that there are prophets there. I'm not sure I know one. I know a lot of people who claim to be prophets. But people who are prophets today and claim to be prophets are always going to be harsh, bring judgment and fire and brimstone out of heaven and consume somebody. But did you know if you try and emulate what Elijah did, you'd be rebuked today? In the ninth chapter of the book of Luke, which I had not got time to read that, but in verse 52 and following, it's an instance where Jesus was going through the land of Samaria. And as he came to Samaria, the Samaritans wouldn't even allow him to come into their city because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And there's a lot of background behind that, but that meant there was a racial and religious prejudice between the Jews and the Samaritans. And because Jesus was going down to Jerusalem to associate with those hypocritical Jews down there, the Samaritans wouldn't even allow him into their city. Did you know that when that was a much worse offense than these people coming out against Elijah, Because all they were wanting to do was take him down to see the king. They weren't going to harm him. God finally told him, I'll protect you. He went and he was protected. And yet, Elijah, just nearly on a whim, called fire down out of heaven and consumed 102 men. When Jesus was snubbed at Samaria, two of his disciples, James and John, said, Lord, will you that we call fire down out of heaven like Elijah did? You know, they were trying to emulate what an Old Testament prophet did. Did you know they were more justified in wanting to call fire down out of heaven on the Samaritans than Elijah was? And you know what Jesus did? He turned around and rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirit you are. The Son of Man didn't come to destroy man's life but to save him, and he went to another place. Jesus rebuked two of his disciples for doing what Elijah, the great prophet of God in the Old Testament, did. Now that's amazing. Did you know if Jesus would have been in manifestation in the Old Testament during the days of Elijah, Elijah would have been rebuked for calling fire down out of heaven? Now I'm not saying that Elijah sinned. I'm saying at the time that was okay. But that was never the true nature and character of God. That is not a proper revelation of God. Jesus said, well it was said of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 that he was the express image of the Father and the brightness of his glory. Jesus was an exact replica of the Father. He showed us the Father perfectly and Jesus showed mercy on the people who rejected him. Instead of bringing fire down on them, he turned around to the people who crucified him and said, Father forgive them for they know not what they do. He did not open his mouth. He became like a lamb before his shears. He was dumb. He did he didn't revile. He didn't speak back. He never got into criticism. Did you know that's the true nature of God, is love and mercy? The Bible says over in 1 John chapter 4, verse, 8, uh, verse um, 7 and 8, that God is love. Now you see a lot of things in the Word of God that make it look like God is anything but love. Are you all understand? I'm trying to, first of all, present a problem, because some people have never even thought this through enough to recognize that there's a difference between the way things happen in the Old Testament and the way they happen in the New Testament. Jesus' disciples tried to do what was done in the Old Testament and were rebuked for it because Jesus brought in a new ministration and Jesus showed us the true way of the Father. The Old Testament was an incomplete representation of God the Father. It was not inaccurate, but it was incomplete. And because most people don't understand that and they think the Old Testament was the complete revelation of God, they have misinterpreted it and made God out to be somebody who He's not. Most of us don't really know the true nature and character of God. You know, a friend of mine, he he uses this example all the time about a little child. You don't have to, you've never seen a little child in their father's arms going around saying, I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that my dad will not drop me. I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that my dad's going to have food for me tomorrow. I confess I'm going to get a tricycle when I'm three. I confess this and I confess. You not they don't have to do that. They just rest because they know their father, because of relationship. Did you know faith comes out of relationship? It comes out of knowing God. The reason most of us have a hard time believing in the goodness of God for us is because we don't know Him. We don't really know the nature and the character of God. It's a terrible, terrible statement about us when Satan can come and say, Oh, God's not going to heal you. And when that moves you, and when that's something you have to fight to overcome, that's a, that's a reflection on your relationship with God. If you really knew God, I guarantee you, God, Satan could never, 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 never discredit God. If you really knew the nature and the character of God, you'd never fall for a lie. 99.9% of all doubt and unbelief shouldn't even be a problem with us if we just knew the nature and the character of God. We don't have a real clear understanding of the nature and the character of God. There are many reasons, but some of them are religious reasons. Some of them come right out of the Word of God because we've misunderstood and misapplied Scripture. Amen? So I've said all that to get you prepared so you'll receive what I'm going to say. I'm going to explain to you about how the Old Testament, what the real purpose of it was, and we're going to see the real nature and the character of God. Here in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. Who's this speaking about? Adam. Adam. Wherefore, as by one man, or Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And then there's a parenthetical phrase begun in verse 13. It says, For until the law... What's until the law mean? Until the law is talking about the law of Moses. The law, the Ten Commandments, and not only the Ten Commandments, there are many, many thousands of commandments, ordinances. Until the time that Moses came and God communicated the law through Moses, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now, this is a radical statement. On the surface, it may not mean much to you, but if you would stop and think about this, this violates nearly every single one of our concepts about God. This is saying that until the days of Moses, when the law was given, there was sin in the world, but that sin was not being imputed or laid to man's account before the days that the Old Testament law was put into effect. That's quite a statement. That means that for nearly 2,000 years after Adam and Eve's sin, there was a period where God was not judging man's sins. God was operating in mercy towards them. Now this will lay the foundation for something, if you'll pay attention, that will totally revolutionize your concept of how God deals with mankind. Most of us have a concept that God was so holy And, of course, I'm not taking uh, away from God's holiness at all. I'm just saying that God's mercy and love is equal to His holiness. Matter of fact, the Bible says God is holy, but the real nature of God is love. God is love. That is the very essence of God. And God's love outweighs His holiness or anything else. But most of us had a concept of God being so holy, so just, that when mankind sinned, Man was separated from God, man was unholy, man was dirty, man was defiled, and so God, because He was so holy, turned His back upon mankind and forsook them, turned away from them because there could be no fellowship between holy God and unholy man. Correct? Well, that's not what the Scripture says. Let's look over here in Genesis chapter 2. Remember that there was a period of time for over 2,000 years where God was not imputing man's sins unto them. In Genesis chapter 3 is where we see Adam and Eve sin against God and take of the tree that God told them not to. And let's go on down to verse 22. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 22 it says, "...the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden." It tells us right here why God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden. When you see the word therefore, you're supposed to look and see what it's there for. And it refers back to verse 22. The reason he sent him out of the Garden of Eden was so that he would not put forth his hand and take of the tree of life and eat it and live forever. He did not send Adam and Eve out of the garden because he could no longer stand them. They were defiled and holy God couldn't look on sin, couldn't fellowship with sin. And so therefore he ran them out from his presence. That is not what it says. He did it because God didn't want them to take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. It was actually an action of mercy. You know, through sin, sickness, disease, everything that we see today came through that. Can you imagine what it would be like to have cancer in your body and yet have eaten of the tree of life and not be able to die and live an eternity with your body eaten up with cancer, your teeth falling out, uh, paralysis, and all of the maladies and things that come as a result of sin and no way out of it. You're trapped in a body like that for eternity. I guarantee you, for a person who has heard the good news of Jesus, has committed their life to the Lord Jesus, God's got something better for us than this physical life and this physical body. He's got a redemption plan for us that's superior. And death is not all that bad. For a person who knows the Lord, death is simply a promotion. Amen. Amen. And so God had something better planned for us. He did not drive Adam and Eve out from His presence. God went with them. God was still walking and talking and communing with them. He drove them out so that they wouldn't take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. In chapter 4, it says in verse 1, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she bare... She again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain a tiller of the ground, and in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord, and Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering, but unto Cain and his offering he had not respect, and Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. Now if you would think when you read these scriptures, it would do you a world of good, amen, you'd be surprised what it' happened if we'd think when we read. Where did Cain and Abel find out about sacrifices? Well, the Scripture doesn't say where they found out about it. There's no reason to believe that God just instilled it within mankind because He didn't intend for them to sin. So there's no reason that Adam and Eve would have known about sacrifices because that was a result of sin. Somebody could look back up here in the third chapter. And in verse 21, where God killed an animal and made coats of skins for Adam and Eve, and you could say that, well, they've got, they, God gave them a pattern of sacrifice right there. To cover their nakedness, there had to be the shedding of blood. And so you could say that that's where they learned about sacrifice. But even if you think that, that doesn't explain about Cain bringing the first fruits and offering them. Did you know that over 2,000 years later, during the Old Testament covenant, did God reveal about bringing the first fruits of your crop? Did you know that that was the ties? Where did they get such detailed revelation knowledge about sacrifices approaching unto God, not only blood sacrifices, but the first fruits of your ground? Where did they get knowledge like that? Well, the normal way to figure that they got it was God told them. God was talking with them. God didn't break off communication with them after sin. And you can see this because when they offered the sacrifices, God some way visibly or audibly showed that he accepted uh, Abel's offering and rejected Cain's. Now, how could they know that? God was still in manifestation. God was still dealing with them. And the Lord said in verse 6 unto Cain, there's no reason to believe that this is anything other than an audible voice of God. They didn't have a born-again spirit that God couldn't communicate with them through their spirit. The Lord said unto Cain, why art thou wroth and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire and thou shalt rule over him. God spoke to him in an audible voice. And what would happen if God spoke to you in an audible voice? Man, most of you had hit the ground. You'd be shook for days or weeks or years. I mean, God talked to them, and the way that they received it is evident that they were used to hearing God speak to them. And then right after this, Cain rose up and killed Abel, and with the blood still on Cain's hands, an audible voice from God came out of heaven and says, Where's your brother, Abel? Now, if you were the very first murderer on the face of the earth, I mean, murder's bad enough, but you know, today some people have hardened themselves because they grew up playing murder since the time they these little kids. Some people have deadened themselves. But this is the very first murder. There was no role model for it. I mean, the very first time murder had ever been committed on the face of the earth, and with the blood still on, on uh, Cain's hands, an audible voice from God comes out of heaven and says, where's your brother Abel? What would you do? He'd probably die instantly of a heart attack, right? I mean, if God caught you and you just murdered somebody, blood on your hands, and all of a sudden God says, what have you done? Look what Cain's reaction was. He just says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? (laughs) Lie to God. You know, that shows you that Cain was so used to having God speak to him that Cain would turn around and lie to God face to face and not think a thing about it. Familiarity breeds contempt. Have any of you ever heard that? For Cain to respond that way to God, it shows that he had to be used to God speaking to him. The point that I'm making through all of this is, if you put your religious traditions aside, and if you look at Scripture, there is not a single indication to show that God ever broke fellowship or relationship with mankind. He was still walking and talking with them. He was operating towards them in mercy. He was communing with them and speaking in an audible voice. And it even says in the 16th verse down here in the 4th chapter that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Now how can he leave something he didn't have? God's presence was with mankind. He was walking and talking with them. And I personally believe that God, when he brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, you remember he had them sanctified himself for three days He set bounds all around the mountain and then he came down and there was the sound of a trumpet and it blew louder and louder and louder and louder and louder until the people couldn't stand it. They had to stop their ears. And finally there was an audible voice of God that spoke to the entire nation of Israel. Did you know that in effect... It was exactly what God started out doing with mankind. God chose these Jews, He separated them, brought them out of the land of Egypt, separated them from all of their idolatry, and God was beginning to commune with them in an audible voice again and fellowship with them. I believe God's intention was to reestablish walking and talking and communicating with mankind in an audible voice just the way that He did. And the people stopped their ears. They were so fearful at the presence of God that they said, Moses, don't let him talk to us anymore. You go talk to him and tell us what he said. People wouldn't allow God to fellowship with them. It's not God that left us. It's us that left God. God during this time was dealing in mercy with these people. Here's the very first murderer on the face of the earth, Cain, killed a man. What did God do? Now God didn't approve of his sin. I'm not saying that sin had no effect, but I'm saying God was restraining his wrath and judgment. God in love, there was a period of time for up to 2,000 years where God did not hold man's sins against them, according to Romans 5:13. He was operating in love and mercy towards mankind. And instead of bringing judgment upon Cain, did you know that God put a mark in his forehead because Cain was fearful? And he said, God, everybody that hears about this is going to want to kill me. They're going to want to avenge what I've done to my brother. And so God said, Cain, I'll put a mark in your forehead, and if anybody touches you, I'll avenge you sevenfold. God protected the first murderer on the face of the earth. Instead of bringing judgment on him, God didn't approve of his sin, but God protected him and said, If anybody touches him, I'll avenge him sevenfold. Now, isn't that contradictory to the way most of us have viewed God? God was operating in such mercy that he protected the very first murder. Again, he did not approve of his sin, but God in mercy, see, extended mercy towards him and was not imputing his sins unto him. Later, under the Old Testament law, we find where a man went out and picked up sticks on the Sabbath day and that broke the law of Moses about observing the Sabbath. And so they brought him to Moses. Moses shut, Moses shut him up, went and prayed and asked God what he had had him to do. And God said, show him no mercy, make an example of him, stone him to death. A man was stoned to death for picking up sticks on the Sabbath day, and yet here's a man who committed murder who wasn't even punished and instead was protected. Can you all see that there's a difference? Can you all see that the Old Testament law was not really the true nature and character of God? The Old Testament law, the severity, the wrath, the judgment, was not the way that God started out. God could have communicated the law to Adam and Eve. He was talking to them face to face, and it took over 2,000 years to find another person he could talk to face to face. God was dealing in mercy. He could have told Adam and Eve all of the precepts of the law. But why didn't he do it? Now, this is something you need to get hold of. Boy, this will revolutionize your life if you can grab what I'm saying. The Old Testament law was not, in its final results, a good thing. It had a purpose, and the purpose was good, but it had a lot of negative things that went along with it. A lot of negative things that went along with it. The Old Testament law, the Bible says, in Galatians chapter uh, 2, it was contrary to us. Or excuse me, that's Colossians chapter 2. It it was contrary to us. God took it out of the way. It was against us. The book of Hebrews is written all to show that the Old Testament law is not a profitable thing. The Old Testament law did a lot of damage to us, and I pray that you listen to this and get all this point. But the Old Testament law is the reason for a tremendous amount of guilt and bondage in Christians' lives today. The Old Testament law of God. Now, some people think, man, that's just unreal. Why would God give anything to do it? Let's look at some scriptures on this, all right? Let's look over here in Romans chapter 3. I'm going to go through a lot of scripture. If you don't write this down, then get a tape. But Romans chapter 3, verse 19 It says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. Now that's showing you that not everybody's under the law. But the Old Testament law was, for those who were under it, it was saying, So that every mouth might be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. So through the Old Testament law, we see it brought guilt. Well, if I had time to explain that. I could verify that in a way that I don't believe anybody could disagree with that. The Old Testament law, the system of thou shalt not, thou shalt not, is the source of your guilt. That's the purpose of the Old Testament law, is to make you guilty before God. Verse 20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The Old Testament law brought us knowledge of our sin, which some of you may think, well, what's wrong with that? Well, there is a place to recognize your sin, but the New Testament way of seeking God is to acknowledge what God has done for you and not all of your sin now there is a place and I'm going to put this into perspective I'm going to balance it out alright but I'm saying that the, under the new covenant the way that you get your faith effectually is by acknowledging the good things that are in you in Christ Jesus is what it says in Philemon verse 6 when you start recognizing what God has done for you is when the real victory comes in the Christian life not when you start recognizing how sorry and how rotten you are and yet, most religion today, that's the way they tell you, that you're supposed to draw close to God. Man, the sicker you get of yourself, the holier you'll get. And that's not so. I can prove it to you because I was mighty sick of myself and I wasn't holy and I didn't have any power of God operating in me at all. There's some of you that are sick of yourself and you know that you're a sinner and, man, you don't have an ounce of what people call pride at all. You've you're got a low self-esteem. You recognize you are no good. You've sinned. You've done all of these things and you had never tapped into the power of God. That's not the way to release the power of God. The law makes you conscious of sin. The law makes you sin conscious. And man, if I, oh, I wish they had time to deal with this. I've got tapes on this. i got a seven-tape series over here. i got one entitled The Law is Not a Faith. i got others, The Old and New Covenants, The Nature of God, Three Tapes. All of those deal with exactly what I'm talking about right now. And they'd really help you. But in Hebrews chapter 10, it says that if the Old Testament sacrifices could have really been effectual, then you would have had no more conscience of sin. And, of course, Jesus was effectual, and one of the benefits in the New Covenant is that you are not even supposed to be sin conscious. Boy, that's powerful. Most people choke on that. That's hard to relate to because, man, that's not the way most... I if you want to draw close to God, what do you do when you pray? You come in, oh, God, I'm so sorry. I'm the sorriest thing there ever walked on the face of the earth. God, I know. I. You start bowing and scraping and confessing all of your sins. Make sure God doesn't slap you upside the head for the way you've been living. That's the way most of you approach God. And the Bible says just the opposite. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. And yet most of us come bowing and scraping, bawling and squalling and telling him how sorry we are. God knows all that. God knows a lot more about it than you do. <laughs> When you, you know, we got, saw a man born again in the first service this morning. And, you know, I I didn't even ask this guy to confess his sins. And some people think, Brother, how do you get born again? The Bible tells Christians that they're supposed to confess their sins. But to get born again, you don't have to confess your sins. Amen. Amen. Now, you do have to have knowledge that you need a Savior, and, and you do have to know that you've sinned. But you don't confess your sins. Instead, you confess your Savior. If you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Paul told the Philippian jailer, he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. He didn't say confess your sins. If confession of your sins was essential for forgiveness, then what would happen if you forgot to confess one? Did that mean it didn't get covered? (laughs) The Bible doesn't tell you to confess your sins, except in 1 John 1, 9, talking to Christians. An unbeliever doesn't have to confess sins. They have to confess Savior. Amen. They have to confess Jesus as their Savior. And praise God, we should reach a place in the Lord where we have no more conscience of sins. Boy, I wish they had time to explain that, but I don't. Let's move on over here to uh, Romans chapter 7. Every time Paul got to teaching and Paul, you know, the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, part of the book of Ephesians and all of the book of Hebrews were written on this exact topic that I'm dealing with. And yet there's probably no subject in the body of Christ that people are as ignorant on as what I'm talking about. Four books of the Bible were written to get people away from the law and out of serving God through the law, and yet nearly every Christian today serves God through the law. You may not offer blood sacrifices. You may not observe the feast days. You may not do some of the rituals associated with the Old Testament law, but you've got the same mental attitude. We've just changed vehicles and headed down the same road. We've got that attitude of law that, God, I must do this and this and this before you'll bless me. Now, instead of offering sacrifices and keeping the feast days and doing these things now, it's i got to study the Bible, i got to pray, i got to pay my tithes, and i got to do this, and if I don't do this and this and this, God won't bless me. Amen. That'll put you in bondage. That'll make you sin conscious. It'll make you your Savior instead of Jesus. Amen. And it's hard being your own Savior. <laughs> I've tried it. It's hard. Romans chapter 7, verse 7 says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? No, the law is not sin. God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment. Sin used the commandment against us. You know, if there wasn't sin in us, the commandment would be great. But the problem is, because we've sinned come short of the glory of God, man, the commandment did some bad things. Sin took occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. Man, that's a strong statement. Without the law, sin was dead. That's in your Bible, isn't it? Without the law, sin was dead. Did you know if it hadn't been for the law, sin was powerless? Well, that's a strong statement. Real strong statement. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. The commandment made sin come alive on the inside of you. It didn't cause sin. Sin was already there. But the commandment made sin come alive on the inside of you, and sin then killed you with guilt and condemnation. Separation from God. Strong stuff. Let's look over here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 6 says, Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit? For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, that's talking about the Ten Commandments, Amen. if the ministration of death, man, it calls the Old Testament a ministry of death. Hey! getting worse every time we read something about it, isn't it? If the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit, that's what we're under today, be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory. Man, it called it a ministration of death, and now a ministration of condemnation. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Who is he that will condemn, what it says in Romans chapter 8. It's not Christ, because he died for you. Yea, now he's risen and seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for you. Condemnation is not a ministration of God. And yet the Old Testament law ministered condemnation and death unto us. Amen? Y'all reading that out of your Bible? Look over here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, back just a page or two. Verse 55 says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Well, it's getting worse every time. (laughs) The strength of sin is the law. Man, why would God give something that was going to strengthen sin, that would make sin revive and kill me by it? Why would God give something to minister death and minister condemnation? Why would God give something that would give me uh, knowledge of sin and make me guilty? None of those are positive effects. Let's keep looking. There's a lot more on this. We're just skimming through. Look over here in Galatians. And on and on you could go with these scriptures. There's a lot of scriptures on this. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 9, So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Most people don't know this, but did you know there was a curse associated with the law? If you could keep the law, everything would have been fine. But the problem is nobody ever kept the law. And for people who didn't keep the law, there was a curse that came upon you. And it says, Cursed is he that continueth not in all things that are written in the law. God doesn't grade on a curve. You don't just do the best you can, and then God, you know, will accept the rest. No, either you had to be perfect and keep the law, or if you didn't keep the law, then all of the curses came upon you. As many as there are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them, but that no man is justified by the law on the sight of God. It is evident, for the just shall live by faith, and the law is not a faith oh man that's a strong statement I'm glad Paul said that instead of me I'd have been in trouble the law is not a faith you know Romans 14 23 says whatsoever is not a faith is sin did you know that the law man I'm going to say something I hope you listen to the rest of this so you won't get mad at me because I will explain this but the law is sin for a New Testament believer the law is not a faith Whatsoever is not a faith is sin. The law of God is sin for you to try and keep and live by the law of God. That is not the way that God wanted to deal with you. Man, there's so many other scriptures we could use. Why did God give us something that's contrary to us? Why did he give us something to kill and to condemn? Why did he give us something to produce death in us? Why did he give us something that wasn't a faith? Why did he do all of these things? Why did he give something that strengthens sin on the inside of us? Well, if you'll go back to Genesis, where Adam and Eve sinned, God showed his true nature towards mankind. There was a period of time that he was not imputing man's sins unto him. He was operating in love and mercy because that's what God is. God is love. He was extending mercy towards mankind. But mankind was taking God's lack of punishment upon sin as approval for sin. They misinterpreted what God was doing. And you can see in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis, Lamech, who was Cain's great-great-great-grandson, he came along and killed a man, the second murderer recorded in the Bible. And Lamech said to his two wives, he was also the first man in the Bible that had two wives, he said to his two wives, he says, If Cain will be avenged sevenfold, then surely God will avenge me seventy and sevenfold. Now, God didn't say that. Lamech said that. You know why? Because there's a tendency. It's recorded over in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul said, but they comparing themselves among themselves and measuring themselves by themselves are not wise. People always have a tendency to compare themselves with other people. Have you ever heard people say, well, if those old hypocrites down there at church make it, I'll make it. Well, what happens if the old hypocrites at church don't make it? I mean, that's not a good standard of comparison, but see, people are always comparing themselves with other people homosexuality used to be something that everybody hated, but now you get a few senators, you get some politicians, you get a movie star, and you get some other people that are homosexuals and they begin to start glorifying it, and now people may not think it's quite as bad. Homosexuality is just as much of an abomination as it ever was, but people may not look at it that way because they're comparing themselves with other people and they're deadening their conscience to what the true proper standard is. Amen. Right. And see, this is what they were doing with God's mercy. God didn't bring judgment on Cain. He murdered a man, and instead of God judging him, God protected him. So people begin to say, well, murder must not be that bad. Lamech says, if Cain got by with it, I'm going to get by with it even more, amen? Seventy and sevenfold, God will avenge me. People begin to start deadening their conscience, destroying their conscience about what was right and wrong. And even though God was not bringing punishment upon sin... Sin was not only a transgression against God. Now, this will really help you, and this will be a basis of a lot of things I say this morning. Sin was not only a transgression against God, but sin was also an open door to Satan. I call it a vertical relationship and a horizontal relationship. Sin had two aspects to it. It was a transgression against God... God wasn't bringing his judgment on it. But even though God wasn't judging it, sin still, every time people committed sin, it was opening them up to Satan and what he wanted to do in their life. Romans 6.16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey his servants ye are, to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So if you submit yourself to Satan or to sin, you become the servant of sin or Satan. It gives Satan inroad into your life. So God wasn't bringing judgment upon sin, but sin was still destroying the human race because Satan was taking advantage of it. God was being merciful to people's sin until the time that he could send the Savior to redeem the human race. But mankind did not recognize the deadliness of sin. They didn't know how bad sin was. They didn't know a standard of what was right and what was wrong. And so they were living in sin. Sin was multiplying at an astronomical pace. And if God hadn't have done something to restrain the amount of sin in the earth, there would not have been a virgin left for Jesus to have been born through. That's exactly how bad the earth was getting. Sin was destroying the human race even though God did not want to bring judgment and punishment, even though he didn't want to bring fire out of heaven and destroy people and do all of these kind of things, finally God had to place some type of restraint upon sin. You know, an example of what we're talking about is like in child training. Until a child reaches a place to where you can reason with them properly, you must discipline your children with the rod. That's what the Bible teaches. A person that waits until their child is a teenager to where they're intellectual enough to be able to reason with them before they start trying to correct them is going to destroy that child. The Bible says a child left himself brings his mother to shame. So you've got to deal with this rebellion. You've got to deal with this tendency to sin in a child. But how do you do it with a little tiny child? You can't sit down with a six-month-old and say, Now, look, don't you take that toy away from your brother again. If you take that toy away from your brother, you're giving place to Satan. Satan is the author of all of that stuff. If you try and tell a six-month-old that, they don't have the slightest idea what you're talking about. All right? But you know what you can do that six-month-old? say, so If you do that again, you just got a swat. I'm going to whip you if you do that again. And you know, that kid may not even know there is a God or a devil. But the next time the devil says, go take that toy, they'll say, no. They'll resist the devil through fear. And so that's the way that you deal with the child until they get old enough. But did you know that that method, even though I believe it is a Bible method, has drawbacks? You're motivating your children through fear. Fear has torment. It is only a temporary way of dealing with your children until you can begin to start reasoning with them and training them properly. The Bible says in 1 John 4:18, fear has torment. You can get people to obey you through fear, but you will always torment them. Love will also cause people to obey, but there is no sorrow added with it. The Bible says, "...the blessings of the Lord maketh rich, and he addeth no sorrow with it." You can go out and get rich. You know, anybody can, can have $100,000 if you want to sign your life away to somebody else. But, you know, there's a lot of sorrow that goes along with that when the payments come due and when the balloon payments come due and all these other things. But when God makes rich, he adds no sorrow with it. There's a God's way and a world's way of prosperity. And it's the same thing. There's a God's way. God's number one way of drawing people to himself was love. But and we were so spiritually dead... Sin was destroying our concept of God. We were so far removed from God that there was a period of time that God used fear. God used punishment to teach us a few things and to restrain the amount of sin in the earth. But it had a lot of negative effects to it. It brought guilt, condemnation. It brought death. It strengthened sin on the inside of us. Have you ever seen a group of kids? And those kids could be playing and everything could be just fine. And unless those kids have already been disciplined and trained up in the Word, the way they should go, you could walk into that room and say, boy, you kids are doing great. You've been behaving just perfectly. But whatever you do, don't touch this. And the moment you say, thou shalt not touch this, those kids are bound and determined that they are going to touch that regardless of of what happens. Now, why is that? And this is just andiology. My own speculation is God made us all to be rulers. He didn't make us to serve under rules and regulations. People hate that stuff. God made us to be gods. God made us to be rulers over this earth without laws and restraints. He gave us freedom of choice. People love freedom. They do not like oppression. And there's just something on the inside of people that when you say, thou shalt not, you say, I shall too, amen. (laughs) I know somebody, boy, challenges me. I was running a race one time, and right at the end of this race, man, I'd been six miles, it was a a 10K race. I'd been six miles, and I mean, I was kicking. I was giving it all I had. I thought I couldn't go a lick faster. And a guy started to pass me. And as he started to pass me, I mean, I turned on the afterburners. I did everything I could, and he was just pulling away from me. And he looked over his shoulder, and he says... You can do better than that. And boy, when he said that, I mean, it just got on the inside of me and man, I took off like a bolt of lightning. And I passed this guy. Jamie can tell you she was there. I beat him by a good 15 or 20 yards in that race. I mean, it's just like he challenged me. Like, you know, can't you do any better than that? And man, I didn't know I had any reserves, but I pulled out on him and I I did it. You challenged me. I'm going to do just, you know, my nature is to do what you say I can't do. And see, that's our old nature. Now, God gave the law not to make us sin, but to show us how messed up we were. People had deceived themselves, thinking, well, I'm not so bad. Cain killed a person, and God didn't punish him, so I, it must not be so bad if I kill a person. Murder must not be so bad. They lost perspective. And so God says, all right, you think you're okay? You don't think that your sin is bad? You don't think that, man, it's an offense? He says, I'll show you what sin is. And, man, he began to give the thou shalt nots. And when he did guilt and condemnation, all of a sudden we begin to recognize, God, that's what you really think of the way I've acted? And, man, it brought us to our knees. It made us guilty before God. It condemned us, and that was good because we needed a Savior. But mankind was deceived, thinking they could be their own savior. They were thinking, well, I'm not so bad. I think I'll quit dipping and cussing and doing all of these kind of things. I won't beat my wife anymore, and surely God will accept me. Well, see, that couldn't atone for what you had done wrong, even if you could live a life without sin, which you couldn't. Man was in deception, and so God started showing them their sin to bring them out of this deception. An example of this is when I was in uh, Houston one time ministering and I had a man stand up in the back of the auditorium and he began to start yelling at me and he was uh, drunk or doped up on something. And so I told him to sit down in the name of the Lord and he sat down. After the thing was over, he came up and sat on the front row and I started talking to him and telling him, Brother, God loves you. You don't have to live a life like that. God can forgive you. God can change you. You can be set free. And I just started ministering the love and the mercy of God to him. And this guy looked at me and he says, I don't need any of that. He says, I am God. He says, God's in this ceiling. God's in the floor. God's in these chairs. We're all gods. <laughs> he was just flipped out. He was weird. He didn't recognize his need for a Savior. He thought he was okay. The Bible says in, well, uh, I'm not sure if this is 1st or 2nd Timothy. It's bound to be. Let me look at this. I believe it's 1st Timothy chapter 1. Let me look at this real quick. First Timothy chapter one verse nine it says that the law verse eight that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this that the law is not made for a righteous man. Who's a righteous man? People who were born again. The law wasn't made for born-again people. Once you get born again, the law isn't for you. The law wasn't made for born-again people, but for the lawless and disobedient, for ungodly, etc., etc. There is a right use of the law. The use of the law is to show people their sin so that they'll quit being deceived into thinking that they don't need a Savior, that they're all right, and somehow or another they'll just make it. Man, they need to see that they're lost and headed to hell, and they need a Savior. That's the purpose of the law. So this guy, see, was deceived. And I sat there, and I began, I turned. Once I saw he was under deception, and I began to take the law. And I began to say, you sorry thing, you are a stink in the nostrils of God. Man, you're an abomination to God. I just whooped the word of God on him, man. I took all of these scriptures and showed him God hates homosexuality. God hates your drug abuse. God hates your selfishness. And I just blasted him with the word of God. That's the purpose of the law. When I got through, this guy who didn't know that he needed God was sitting there in tears because he recognized he was under the wrath and the judgment of God and headed to hell. That's the purpose of the law is to break you, to knock you to your knees so that you'll quit trusting in yourself and say, God, help. That's what it says in Galatians chapter 3. Before the faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. In other words, every time I got on a self-help program and I tried to say, God, I'm, I'm going to do this and I'll, I'll be all right. Well, there was the law saying, Thou shalt not. And I found out I was failing in that area. And so I hid in this area. I failed there. The law shut me up so that the only way I could look was up and cry out to God for mercy. But after I come under the mercy of God, I am no longer under the law of God. The law's only purpose was to show me how sorry and how rotten I was so I'd quit trusting in myself and come to Jesus for salvation. But after I come to Jesus for salvation, if I still keep that law up there as my standard and try and say, God, if I'll just do all of these things you've commanded... It's going to continue to minister guilt. It's going to continue to minister condemnation. It's going to continue to kill. It's going to continue to give you knowledge of sin. It's going to make you feel guilty before God, unworthy. And it's going to separate you from the love and the mercy and all of the good things that God has for you. And most people, see, have never made the break. Most people are still trying to serve God by keeping all of the Ten Commandments and everything else. Let me give you an example of this over in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Man, I'm talking as fast as I can. If your roast is burning, (laughs) just let it burn. Amen. It's better that it burns than you. (laughs) Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 14 talk about all of the blessings that'll come upon you for keeping the law. Verses 15 through 68 talk about all of the curses that'll come upon you. And I mean, they're severe curses. Galatians chapter 3 verse 12 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. And there is no more literal fulfillment of the curse of the law than these scriptures. So Galatians 3.13 where it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law so that the blessings of Abraham might come upon us is literally talking about Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68. So verses 15 through 68, every curse, the bots, the mildew, blasting, emrods, sickness, disease, poverty, all of these things we're now redeemed from. It's just like God had a big blackboard up here and he draws a line down the middle and he says blessings on this side and curses on this side. And he starts listing what he considers blessings. Have you ever heard people say, well, this cancer was really a blessing in disguise because it's what brought me to the Lord. God lists cancer over on the curse side. Amen. You ought to go by God's account, not by somebody else. God lists cancer and sickness and disease, every sickness and every disease as a curse and he put it over on this side. Amen. All right. Well, all of the curses have been removed from us. Now, there's a lot of Spirit-filled people that when they get born again, they no longer believe in the severe punishment of God. They don't believe they're going to go to hell for every sin that they commit. They don't believe God's going to put sickness and disease upon them for the sins that they commit, all right? They'll go that far, but they'll think, If I'm not living a holy life, God may not get me, but God also won't bless me. God may not put the curses on me, but he also isn't going to release the blessings unless I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to do. Well, brothers and sisters, that's also not accurate because none of us are doing everything we're supposed to do. God's never had anybody who was qualified working for him yet. (laughs) Amen? Look here in verse 28, chapter 28, verse... 1 This is where people get that. It says and it shall come to pass if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and to do all his commandments which I command thee this day. Notice that word if. That makes this a conditional promise. It shall come to pass. These blessings will come into your life if you hearken to observe and to do not most a lot the best you can. It says all of these commandments. And the commandments of God are more than ten. There are hundreds of thousands of commandments. Now, a lot of people say, Brother, I believe that I should be blessed in my basket, blessed in my store. I believe God wants to do those things, but the reason it hadn't happened is because I just hadn't hearkened diligently enough. I hadn't observed to do all of these commandments yet. So I'm committing myself to seek God more. I'm committing God that I'm going to study more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to do, do, do all of these things. That kind of attitude will destroy you. Because I promise you, you will never do enough. You know, Paul, every once in a while, would say, I'm speaking like a fool would speak. And then he'd begin to tell you his righteousness, what he'd been doing. What he meant by that was, look, this isn't, you know, we shouldn't be comparing ourselves among ourselves. But some of you are thinking you can get there on your own. I'll just prove to you. I've lived a better life than you did, and I couldn't get it. So you might as well quit trying. Well, I'll do that same thing. Did you know I was raised in a home where I never have said a cuss word in all of my life? I've never taken a drink of liquor in all of my life. I've never smoked a cigarette in all of my life. I've never even tasted coffee before. Now, I don't believe coffee's sin. The Bible says, you know, you can can have coffee. You can drink any deadly thing, and it won't harm you. Amen. (laughs) but what I'm saying is I have lived a separated life and I can tell you this I wasn't getting a single thing through how good I was and if I wasn't most of you might as well hang it up (laughs) no you can't observe to do all of his commandments the purpose of the law man get this the purpose of the law, most people have interpreted, oh, God, thank you for the law. Now I know what i got to do. You outlined it for me. Step one through a 100,000. <laughs> Man, do this and do this and do this. Thank you, Father. Now I know what I've got to do. No, the purpose of the law was to show you, look, you'll never make it. You are, you're hopeless. Quit trying and start trusting. Man, ask for a Savior and quit trying to be your own Savior. That was the purpose of the law. And that's exactly what Deuteronomy chapter 28 is trying to show you. These blessings, he hangs them out in front of you like a carrot, and he says, you got to be perfect to get every one of them. And most of us have been trying to say, okay, God, I'm going to be perfect. No, you'll never be perfect. You can't observe to do all of these commandments. The way we ought to read Deuteronomy 28 is to read it this way. It is coming to pass since Jesus hearkened diligently to observe and to do all of the commandments. And since I am an heir of everything that he gets through his righteousness, through his holiness, all of these blessings are coming upon me through what Jesus did. I'm blessed in the city and I'm blessed in the field. I'm blessed going out. I'm blessed coming in. All of it ought to be done through Jesus. But most of us read this and we immediately say, oh, God, now I know I've just got to be more diligent. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. No, that, the purpose that God gave the law was to show you, look, you all are in a mess. You need a Savior. It restrained the amount of sin, but the sin that we had committed was totally destroyed us. And again, I can verify that by my life because I didn't go into the sin that a lot of you did. I lived a very separated life, a very holy life. I mean, since the time I was old enough to know anything, I've been seeking God. I am in. I remember when I was in Bible... Uh, what do they call it? Bible school or... Uh, Vacation Bible School. They were one time asking, how many of you have a daily devotional time with the Lord? And they were trying to encourage all the kids to have a devotional time with the Lord. And they had everybody hold up their hands, and this teacher was going to show that he spent 20 minutes a day uh, fellowshipping with the Lord and trying to inspire them to do that. And, you know, he started asking, how many of you spend, you know, pray every day? Well, quite a few of us raised their hand. How many of you study the Bible? Do you know, at the time that he was asking, I was about 9 or 10 years old, I spent at least an hour a day praying and studying the Word when I was eight or nine years old. Now, I didn't have any revelation of it, but I mean, I've been seeking God since the time I was a little, tiny kid. I did not go into the overt sin that some of you did, and yet did you know that I was probably one of the most guilt-ridden, condemned people that you would ever find in your life. I felt so unworthy, so ungodly. My dad died when I was 12 years old, and I knew why he died, is because of me. It was judgment on me because I was such a sorry, no good, no count, nothing. I was with three people that died before I was 18 years old, had my hands on them while they died. And I knew why they died, because it was because of me. I was so ungodly. I mean, I was condemned. I was guilt-ridden. And yet, I was living a holy standard by everybody else's life. But see, I I didn't commit as much sin, but the sin that I had committed totally destroyed me to where I was guilt-ridden. I had no freedom, no peace with God. I wasn't out living in sin, but I wasn't in the joy of the Lord either. I was stuck somewhere in between being lost and being saved. (laughs) I was saved, but I wasn't enjoying the pleasures. You know, the Bible says there was pleasures in sin for a season. I wasn't enjoying the pleasures of sin. I wasn't enjoying the pleasures of God. I was saved and stuck. I was miserable until God began to start getting me out from under all this guilt and condemnation. See, I misinterpreted the law. I misinterpreted. I thought, God, you're going to love me proportional to how well I perform. No, the law wasn't given so that by keeping it, you could earn anything from God. The law was given to show you, look, you can't do it. Quit trusting in yourself and trust in Savior. That's the purpose of the law. Then after you get born again, the way you're supposed to seek God is now, not by a set of rules and regulations, but through love. Meditate on how much God loves you. Start thinking about how He committed His love towards you, and that while you were yet a sinner. And that love will get you so stirred up that I guarantee you you'll wind up living a holier life than you could ever live through a set of rules and regulations. <coughs> Boy, I could explain that for years, but I just had not got time. That's powerful. Amen. Let me illustrate this for you real quick. I had these horses given to me about a, two years ago. They're super good horses. And anyway, two of these horses that were given to me just last year uh, were wild horses. Nobody had ever been able to get a hand on them. One one of them, they were three years old last year, and one of them had had a halter put on it when it was a young horse, a a yearling. And this halter was beginning to grow into its nose. And so it was causing it a lot of pain. And something had to be done with this horse. It was a a half-Aradian, half-quarter horse. And so these people gave me these two horses. We already had the two mamas, and these were the two foals to the mamas. So they gave me these horses, but they had to move. And so the time was coming that we had to do something with those horses. So we offered these guys that that's all they did was break horses. Uh, We offered them $350 a piece to take these horses and to break them and then deliver them to us. Well, these guys went out four weeks in a row to catch those horses. And uh, they roped a horse and had the uh, rope tied to a fence post and it cor- pulled the corner fence post and all of the fence out. Phew! Ran right off with it. They roped it another time and he drug this guy all across the field and like to have killed this guy. They tried everything that they knew how to do. They'd been doing this for 30 years and they could not catch those horses. They got so upset. They said, Those horses are wild. Says they're loony. He says, we are not going to have anything to do with them. So anyway, nobody would break these horses. They couldn't even catch them and get them out of the pasture. The people were fixing to move, and I was fixing to lose these two horses. We were going to have to shoot them and drag them off somewhere is about all that could be done. So I prayed about it, and the Lord showed me how to catch that, that horse. It's real simple. I was taking a shower on Saturday morning, and it just showed me exactly how to catch this horse. So I went out and caught this horse. didn't take me about ten minutes to catch this horse. It was really supernatural. <laughs> but when I caught this horse, this is the point of the story. When I caught this horse, I had a rope tied up to a railroad tie sunk in the middle of the pasture. And uh, it was just the Lord to helped me catch this horse because two days later, that horse, I was walking up to it, it just leaned a little bit, and that rope that I caught it with snapped in two. But the day that I caught it, it just held firm. No problem. It was the Lord kept that rope together. But I, anyway, I got that rope around his horse's neck, and as soon as it realized it had a rope around its neck, it took off at a dead run. I mean, boy, from about here to the back of the auditorium, it ran as hard as it could go, and that rope caught and knocked it, pulled it up over off of its feet, and on its back at a dead run flopped that 1,200-pound horse on its back. And boy, when that happened, that horse went wild. I never had seen anything like this in my life. It scared the fire out of me. This horse began to buck and roll and spit. It ran around, it pitched, it did everything. Its eyeballs were sticking out, blood red. It was spitting blood out of its nose and mouth. It cut itself all in the throat. And if any of you are horse lovers, I know that this isn't the way to do it, but I just had no option. This horse had to have something to do. We tried other methods and this is the only way I could get it. So anyway, for about 30 minutes, this horse ran. It did everything. I mean, it went totally wild and I got so fearful I tried to let it go, but it was pulling so tight on the rope I couldn't get any slack to get it to get the rope off. So anyway for 30 minutes this horse ran and went wild And after 30 minutes it was pulling so tight on the rope it couldn't breathe and it choked and passed out and Fell down so when it fell down I went up and took this halter off of it and loosened it up And then I took the ropes and I, I tied it up in between two railroad ties and that horse was so tired It was still awake. It had its eyes on, but it couldn't even wiggle. And I was just able to sit on it, you know, and do all these kind of things. And it stayed down for an hour and a half. And when it finally stood back up, that horse stood in that exact position for 24 hours. It never moved. It hardly blinked an eyelid. And you could sit on that horse. You could walk under it. You could pick up its legs. You could touch it. You could do anything. That horse, it was broken. It wasn't trained, but it was broken. And I just got through last weekend. I took a trip up into the mountains on that horse and uh, rode it. I've had my kids riding. I've I've broken it. We're riding. Everything's going fine. But anyway, the point that I'm making is that that horse learned that it could not win against me, and I kept it tied up there for over a week, and I I think it was on the second. Well, no, I didn't. I was going to keep it tied up a week, and on the second day, it's got its hind hoof up in one of those ropes, and it uh, cut itself so bad that that horse was down, and couldn't even stand up. And when a horse is down, usually you just have to shoot him and that's it. We nursed that horse back to health. I mean, man, we prayed over that horse. That horse was pitiful. It lost about 250 pounds within the first week through the trauma of all this. It could be standing out in the pasture, and it could be with its head up looking a real proud horse, and it could see me or see my car driving up, and that horse would put its head down, you know, look like an old plug. That's the way a horse shows submission is to put its head down like that. And I mean that horse. I just, I, I won over that horse. But did you know that that horse now, when I got around it, it's getting better now, but when I first got around it, it would go to shake. It'd put its head down and it'd just go to shaking all over when I came up. It just knew that if it crossed me again, I was going to put a rope around its neck and cut its foot and, and, you know, it just figured I'd probably bring it within a stroke of death if it ever crossed me again. So when I finally got on and broke this horse the very first time I rode it, it never did buck or anything. It just, it was afraid to do anything because it was afraid of what I'd do. Now, I did get compliance out of that horse, but the point that I'm making is that horse got a totally wrong impression of me. I really am not a mean person. I really would, I would never treat a horse that way again because I didn't know that that was gonna happen to it in the first place. But we were just to a place where that, it wasn't me throwing the rope around that horse's neck that made it get hurt. It was its wild nature inside that pulled at that rope that actually hurt it. But something had to be done to restrain that horse. See, God didn't want to do anything to restrain us. God wanted to let us serve him out of love. But we we were so wild inside. Our nature was so bad that God finally had to restrain us. God finally had to drag us out of that pasture we was in, amen, and get us over to someplace else. And when he did, man, sin revived within us. All of our old sin nature rose up. We began to fight against it. Rebellion came out. And for those who learned the lesson, it accomplished one good thing. It broke us. But did you know, now I'm trying to bring that horse out of that. I'm trying to get that horse so it won't be fearful. I'm try- I go up and talk to it. I sing to that horse. This horse's name's El Shaddai, which means more than enough. Amen. <laughs> and it's had more than enough. Amen. And I go up and talk to this horse, and I try and, you know, soothe it down and try and get it to where it likes me. You know, that horse got a totally wrong impression of what my real nature was like. And that's kind of an example of what I'm saying this morning, that we have a wrong impression of God. We saw the wrath. We saw the severity of God. We've seen the Ten Commandments. We've seen all of these things, and we thought that God demanded all of this of us before we could be pleasing to Him. But no, it was just the opposite. God finally threw that rope around our neck for our own good to destroy us, to kill us, to bring us to our knees, to knock us flat of our face so that we had recognize we can't make it on our own and we would turned to him for salvation. But now that we've come to him for salvation, God's wanting to bring you out of this. God's wanting it to be the goodness of God that causes you to seek him. I, I'm faithful to my wife not because I'm fearful that, of what God would do to me if I wasn't faithful to my wife. There's two ways to motivate people. You could take a person and you could say, man, if you if you commit adultery on your wife, God hates adulterers." You could whoop a lot of scriptures out. You could begin to say, God will get you. God will destroy you. Your life will fall apart. And man, uh, you know, you could just put fear into people. Now that may cause them not to go commit adultery outwardly, but it wouldn't change the inward part of them at all. Or there's another way to approach it. The other way is to get a person to really love their wife and they'll never commit adultery. If you really love a person, I guarantee you I'm faithful to Jamie because I love her. I never one time ever think about fear of God getting me if I'm not faithful to her. I never have to use fear to motivate me because I love my wife, and I guarantee you I am not going to be unfaithful to her. If you're serving God because you're fearful, if you don't pay your tithes, God's not going to bless you. God's going to get you. You're going to fail. And if your motivation is fear, fear is better than not serving God at all, but fear has torment. And there are some of you that have done all of the right things, but you've done it with the wrong attitude and you're tormented. You don't have peace with God. You don't have the joy that God intended for you to have. You can serve Him out of fear or you can serve Him out of love. And serving Him out of love is better. Some people think, well, brother, if I, if I drop all of my do's and don'ts and thinking that God uses me according to how I perform, what's going to keep me performing right? Love. Love will cause you to live a holier life than fear ever will. And brothers and sisters, we have been tormenting ourselves. God is love. God's real nature is love. And God never intended to put us under all of its regulation system of do's and don'ts. And the New Testament says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and your neighbor as yourself. That's what he tells you to do. Just do that, and you'll be all right. You don't have to worry about all the commandments. Boy, this needs to be balanced and so much more said, and I'm just running out of time. I think some of you had about as much as you can take this morning. But there, I've got a lot more of this on tape, and I'd like to encourage you to get it. One last story I want to share. This is real brief, and then I'll be through. But uh, there was a man named David Brainerd, who was a missionary to the American Indians back in the 1900s. This man was raised in a Puritan home that put a lot of emphasis on holiness and on what you do and all these things. And when he was a teenager, he recognized that he was not born again and that he was going to hell. He knew he didn't have peace with God. And so he started on a pilgrimage to find peace with God. And over a two-year period of time, he read the Bible through two or three times complete. He would fast 40 days at a time. He would pray all night long. And he was doing all of these religious things, and yet he just never could get peace that he was right with God. And finally, one day he was walking through the woods, and he was so desperate that he said, God, I'd rather die and go to hell and get all of this over with than to keep living in this misery. He said, Just let the earth open up and swallow me alive into hell. And when he said that, God gave him a vision. He didn't know it was a vision until after it was all over. But anyway, the earth opened up, and he started falling right into hell. I mean, he could see the flames and feel the heat, smell the smoke of it. And he was falling right into hell. He tried to grab for something along the sides of this cliff. There was nothing to grab. And finally, in desperation, he just screamed and says, Jesus, save me. And as soon as he said that, he was laying on the ground. And all of the love and the joy and the peace and all of the things that he knew, the Word of God promised when you got straight with God, he was experiencing all that. And he began to just start praising God. And then after a little bit, he said, God, why now? Why like this? He says, I've prayed, I've fasted, I've done all of these things. How come I get saved like this? And the Lord spoke and says, Well, this is the first time you ever asked me to do it. (laughs) And did you know that that's the way it is with us? Most of us ask Jesus to forgive us of our sins because you knew you couldn't save yourself, but most of us think we can heal ourselves by confessing 999 times and studying the Word and going to church, and most of us can get prospered. Man, I'll just put my money in the plate and I'll do this, and then God's got to perform. No, no, that's not the way it works. Brothers and sisters, you need to recognize that you can't heal yourself any more than you saved yourself. You can't prosper yourself any more than you saved yourself. It's just all Jesus. It's just all Jesus. Well, then why even live a holy life? Not because of God. God is not imputing our sins unto us. I don't live a holy life to please God. I don't live a holy life to earn from God. I live a holy life because I know that Satan will take advantage of every sin that I give him. And even though God's blessings are still on me, I guarantee you Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and you can't give him very much place and prosper. So I do live a holy life, but I don't live it thinking that God is going to deal with me proportional to my holiness. Holiness doesn't change my relationship with God, nor does a lack of holiness change my relationship with God. But a lack of holiness will certainly change my relationship with the devil. Boy, it will allow Satan to run roughshod over me, and I'm not going to prosper even though God's blessings are upon me. So I do believe in living a holy life, but not as a basis of God moving in my life. See, I understand the purpose of the Old Testament law.